Hello everyone, Ryan Willoughby again. Today's episode of A Hand Up is special. Today we are interviewing Mr. Ken Schutz, the author and inventor of the Aligned Influence Governance Model. Ken is a veteran of the Habitat mission and has helped transform Habitat affiliates across the entire country. He uses his proven and engaging form of governance called Aligned Influence, which you can also now read about through his book that is available on Amazon. Thanks for tuning in here to Kent's Insight and Leadership. You are going to enjoy this thoroughly. All right, Ken, how are you doing today? Doing very well. How about you, Ryan? I am doing very, very well. I appreciate you taking the time to be on the Hand Up podcast. I am very excited about this conversation today. It's an honor for me to be part of it. So, uh, Ken, for our listeners out there, um, a number of them may already know uh, you from your previous work that you've done with Habitat Affiliates in Georgia or uh, being a part of our 2018 conference. And of course, I think we're all excited to see you here at our 2021 conference. But maybe for those folks who don't know who Ken Schutz is, uh, would you just introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us a little bit about you. Yeah. So, again, my name is Ken Schutz. Uh, I'm... uh, stationed in uh, uh, Longmont, Colorado, which is just outside Boulder on the front range of Colorado, uh, eastern side of the mountains. Uh, I, uh, uh, my, my early part of my career was in higher ed uh, 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 as an executive at the University of Colorado, Boulder, uh, and uh, where I'm now on the faculty actually of the business school there. Uh, teaching um, um, business philosophy and corporate governance. Uh, the, the connection I have to Habitat, where I think most people know me, is I'm also the um, uh, CEO and founder of a consulting company called Aligned Influence uh, and the creator and author of uh, a model, a a corporate governance model called uh, aligned influence as well. Uh, And so I've been uh, um, working with uh, nonprofits and for-profits, but mostly nonprofits and heavily with uh, Habitat affiliates around the country uh, for the last 10 years, Uh, uh, expanding uh, the work, uh, fine-tuning the work of aligned influence. And uh, I say an author because uh, about four months ago now, uh, my first book, Aligned Influence Beyond Governance, actually uh, fully um, uh, was released uh, into the publishing market. Uh, And so uh, many of you may have picked that up and started to read that too. Yeah, Ken, I I have to say, I was actually um, really excited when your book came out uh, Harold, of course, shared with me a kind of, I guess, screener copy. I don't know if that's the proper term. Yeah. Um, but, you know, within a few hours, I, I called Donna on the phone. I said, Donna, I got to get you a copy of this. This is absolutely amazing. And immediately went on to Amazon, pre-ordered it. She got it the day it came out. And she had the exact same response. We both um, are really uh, smitten with the aligned influence model. And that's why we're excited you're going to be sharing that with our folks, not just here on the podcast, but again at the conference. Um, I got to say, fantastic book. I hope um, you did say it was your first book. 
So I'm, I'm curious to know, it's not going to be your last, right? Hopefully there's going to be some more. Yeah, uh, I would say that uh, we have several others uh, planned, uh, but as the first book, this is the theoretical basis for the model uh, and uh, applies it generally to the relationship between a board and an executive team. Uh, Follow-up books are going to be uh, taking what's <clears throat> it's, it's talked about in the book in terms of uh, the way it applies to certain uh, verticals, if you will, certain types of organizations. And we'll be uh, thinking about uh, in further books about how those go deeper into those uh, different kinds of organizations like uh, churches and uh, nonprofits and schools and all of those kinds of things. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I noticed in the book is you, it seems like in the first half of the book, you're kind of laying the the groundwork for where we have come as organizations and what the traditional um, theories have been regarding governance. And then that second half of the book, you're introducing aligned influence. And uh, it feels like there's so many really applicable lessons out there. So I, I'm looking forward to your future books where you can dive even deeper and show us some uh, hands-on things about aligned influence. Yeah, so, so we've used the term model a couple of times now in our conversation. Uh, would you just go ahead and, uh, you know, I, I want to say do an elevator speech, but, you know, for those who have never heard of aligned influence, don't know what we mean when we're talking about models, j just break it down for us. What is aligned influence? Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, I, uh, I often say aligned influence was born in Habitat. Um, you know, one of the things I didn't uh, unpack a few minutes ago in my background was uh, that I've been very involved with Habitats uh, at the board level since 2004, when I joined, first joined the board of the St. Brain affiliate uh, in on here on the Front Range of Colorado. Uh, and I say it was born in Habitat because that's where I started to see uh, uh, the need uh, for something that would help uh, provide some uh, understanding of what's really going on. Uh, in this space between uh, the board of directors and uh, the executive director or uh, head of school or whatever uh, that person, the title is of that person that is the uh, uh, leading the operational side of the organization. Uh, and what came out of, the, of that, uh, of my work, uh, as most academics will uh, tell you, uh, that uh, research work always starts out with uh, a review of current literature. Uh, I was pretty familiar with that. Uh, and in fact, in the nonprofit space, uh, the probably the most prominent uh, source of literature uh, was uh, John Carver's work, uh, often called Carver Governance or International Policy Governance. And what became really clear is that people would ask each other, are you a governance organization? And then when they said yes, said, uh, and so we know how, what, what, you know, why that's a tough thing to do. Uh, and so my work in developing this was to try to figure out, so why is it that we have this thing that everybody points to, uh, international policy governance, Carver governance, uh, that, uh, but at the same time feel like it's uh, really not doing what we want it to do. And what came out of that, uh, uh, research, I call small R research because there weren't human subjects in, involved. The, the small R research was uh, that uh, uh, that 
in fact, uh, what we were doing was we were uh, in uh, this in that, that existing governance structure, we were speaking only to the board, uh, telling the board to define the ends, limit the means, and stay out of everything else, uh, and uh, expecting that the policies we created uh, were going to uh, uh, make governance better. And lo and behold, we were finding that that really wasn't working the way we thought it was. And so uh, my ahas were that, in fact, what needed to happen is that we needed uh, to understand that policies weren't the solution, actually. Uh, policies are a really important tool, but they ultimately are not the solution. They're a tool in the solution. That really what has to happen, what really was needed uh, to uh, help to uh, make this relationship better and more effective was to not just give a role to the board, but to understand what the role of the board was and what the role of the executive uh, was and think about how those two roles are appropriately aligned. So it turns out we can't align something until we have two things to align. And what we were doing forever was we were simply giving the board uh, marching orders and governance and assuming that that was going to solve the problem. And it didn't. And so today, uh, aligned influence uh, talks about how the board uniquely influences the organization, three roles to direct, protect, and enable, and uh, how the executive uniquely influences the organization through three roles lead, manage, and accomplish, and then uh, aligns those to understand how they are similar and how they are different, how both direction and leadership are uh, about thinking about the future of the organization, uh, or thinking strategically about the organization, uh, but uh, the strategic thought that the board has is about what's to be accomplished, who's to be served, ideals to be maintained, and the strategic uh, focus of the executive's work is thinking about the three to five year plans uh, that will accomplish that work the board has defined uh, and uh, the budgets that are going to be necessary to support those, the programs and the budgets that are going to be necessary to support those. That both think about the day-to-day the -day getting stuff done. Um, the board thinks about that by protecting it putting boundaries around it. And the executive thinks about that by creating operational policies and procedures and making sure that uh, those are uh, clear enough so that volunteers and staff uh, can get the work done and stay within the protective boundaries uh, that the board has uh, set for the organization. And finally, both have a dual role, that the dual role for the board is to enable the work of the board, which is really thinking about how they use all their spheres of influence to advocate for the work of the board uh, and how they turn those advocacy relationships into resource development relationships and then how they really focus on enabling the work by being disciplined to that role and not moving over into the executive's role and the do role for the executive is actually to get the work done to accomplish the work that it's it is in fact the uh the role of the executive and their team to accomplish the work. So now we have these ordered pairs of influence. Both think about the future, direct and protect, um, direct and lead, excuse me. Both think about what's going on day to day, uh, protect and to manage, uh, and both have a do role uh, uh, to enable the work and to accomplish the work. And by doing that, now all of a sudden, we have the ability to now go back 
and apply policies to this that make sense now in terms of making sure it's documenting this alignment, documenting these roles, and uh, supporting this alignment uh, as we move forward. So really what we figure out is that uh, the, the real key to the, the real key to the problem, or to the solution to the problem, is alignment, not policies. Policies are important, but if they come before alignment, uh, we actually end up with a, a suboptimal uh, situation. Again, that last bit to me is so, so poignant in habitat land. Donna and I have been talking about this quite a bit. Uh, you're doubtlessly familiar with this thing we have called the um, called the QAC, right? The Quality Assurance Checklist, and you know, a big part of that QAC involves uh, more or less just affirming that you have certain policies in place. And it seems to me that a lot of times in habitat land, we do kind of become policy focused. We we seem to think that okay, well, if you've got the policies, then everything is okay, but you know, simply having a policy is not sufficient. And what you just said there, I think is so critical that having the policy without the alignment really is counterproductive. And it's only, the, it's only part of the solution, right? Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, it's um, it, it's just a small part of the solution. And, and I think, especially relative to alignment, if we were to look at those as two pieces of pie, I would say the alignment is certainly the, the real, real, chunk and, and meat of uh, what it takes to be a successful organization, particularly a Habitat affiliate. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm curious to know, though, you know, I can imagine that some of the folks listening out here um, think this might sound a little theoretical. They kind of think, well, maybe, you know, I've, I've got all my boxes checked off and everything. The aligned influence model, though, I mean, is it applicable to all Habitat affiliates, regardless of size, location, et cetera? And if so, you know, why? And if not, why not? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, actually, it's, uh, I'd say it's, it's very applicable. Uh, usually the way this, uh, this question comes up is in the context of, does a habitat have to be of a certain size before it can start thinking about alignment? Uh, back in the policy governance days, uh, we'd say, well, you really can't do governance until you have a paid executive director. And uh, habitat affiliates sometimes start out as all volunteer organizations. And so is alignment uh, not important in those? And one of the things that we see right away uh, in affiliates, because we work with several very small affiliates, is that uh, especially in those small affiliates, we see the fact that they're so volunteer driven starting to really uh, exacerbate this misalignment concept. Uh, I, I think that uh, uh, that if we apply the alignment, we understand that there's all these volunteers. And if we understood that some of those volunteers were going to take the board role and they were going to focus on directing, protecting, enabling, and some of those volunteers were going to take uh, the lead role and we're going to focus on leading, managing, and accomplishing. Now, all of a sudden, even in that context, we have these volunteers focused on very specific things. And now all of a sudden uh, that even those small affiliates, those small organizations um, uh, move quicker to the point that they have, they're building the capacity to start uh, hiring uh, at least the executive and, and many times uh, beyond the executive. So it's it really is a, 
wherever you at, wherever you're at in your development, it is a, a moment at which uh, you have the opportunity to, to use this concept of alignment to take it to the next step. If you're all volunteer or mostly volunteer, now getting volunteers to understand this and understand which of these roles that they feel most that they, they could they could be most focused in because at that point that you're just a bunch of volunteers now how does this all work and uh are we all are we the board and we're uh pounding nails or uh are some of us going to focus on the role of the board and focusing outward and some of us going to focus on uh building houses and working with families and all of a sudden now when we do that we start to move forward we start to uh, have even the small organization move forward. That's awesome. I, I love that the aligned influence model is something that you can take wherever you are as a Habitat affiliate and then put it into action and use that to move forward. That is to me a, a really critical point. And so I'm kind of curious to know though, so we can say effectively aligned influence is applicable to every single Habitat affiliate, wherever they are. I'm curious to know that you said you've been involved with Habitat for 10 years. How long have you been working on the aligned influence model specifically? Do you mind me asking? Yeah, it's the it's the aligned influence model I've been working on for 10 years. It's it, working with Habitat is even longer than that. That's from 2004. So I guess that is uh, 16, 17 years I've been working with Habitat. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Great. So, I mean, 10 years, you've been working on this model for a decade. Now, and, you know, for over two decades, you've been working with Habitat Affiliates. And I'm curious to know, you've addressed some of them, but what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that Habitat Affiliates face? I'm sure the challenges today are quite different than what they were in 2004. So what are some of the biggest challenges today where you see Aligned Influence being the solution? Yeah, I think if we go back to that, uh, really starting to understand uh, what the key problem is, you know, when we continue to try to apply solutions that are only partial solutions and that we can continue to get frustrated, we often move backwards into places that uh, actually haven't been successful before in other places. It's really about talking about uh, uh, when I when I describe aligned influence and the situation that uh, we start from uh, that turns out that we've been trying to solve this alignment problem uh, in a couple of different ways. And one of the ways that we try to solve this alignment problem is just to eliminate the need for alignment overall. And so one of the one of the ways that organizations uh, sort of model what's been happening in the uh, for-profit world that has caused so many problems is actually move into that place where uh, there isn't really anything to align because uh, the board and the executive team are are sort of uh, melded into one, or the, the the person that is driving the board side of the organization is also heavily driving what's happening on the executive side, or vice versa. Uh, and so we end up in a place where things are working until they don't work, um, and that's that's what we learned. Uh, in the publicly held for-profit side. Uh, in my role uh, at the university teaching corporate governance, we, we uh, start to understand pretty clearly uh, uh, that um, uh, we have, uh, we've had huge governance failures. Um, think about the governance failures in 2008 that really led to um, uh, 
the recession that impacted the whole world. Um, uh, that our, our response to those was in many ways creating external policy uh, and applying the external policy like uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, Dodd-Frank, those kinds of things. And so we have, uh, one of the things we've done is try to move away from having these two roles and have one person that's doing both. So in those publicly held for-profit companies, often the person who's the CEO is also the chairman of the board. Um, and uh, that in that there's no need for alignment because one person's driving both. Uh, again, it works until it doesn't work. Um, the second thing we often see is uh, that uh, this concept of external policy uh, at the at the uh, federal government level, it was Sarbanes-Oxley and Dodd-Frank, but in organizations like Habitat, uh, we see a, a similar thing going on where uh, there are uh, external uh, policies being mandated from the outside. And really what starts to happen is we start to confuse governance with compliance. Um, we start to understand that we start to think that good governance is actually being compliant with all these external regulations, whether they be federal regulations or in our case, uh, Habitat for Humanity International uh, uh, regulations. And what we know is that in what we know from history is that those are two very different things. Being compliant doesn't, being having good compliance doesn't necessarily mean you have good governance in place. Mm -hmm. Man, that's, that's powerful. That's something that, you know, I'm, just thinking from the perspective of me and Donna working with affiliates, we see so, so often. Um, and I wanna, I wanna kind of unpack this a little bit further because I was taking some notes here as you were speaking and this, I wanna kind of share this to frame my next question to you. You know, what you kind of described there, I love that phrase about it works until it doesn't. And, you know, I think especially in Habitat land, it's been very easy for our affiliates to depend on kind of one single strong leader who, you know, really pushes, uh, you know, pushes the train down the track, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, inevitably something happens, whether it just be attrition or time or circumstance, whatever it is, um, where when that leader is maybe no longer with the organization, or maybe they are still with the organization, but they're not really um, maybe quite as committed as they once were, or, uh, you know, priority shift and that sort of thing, it, it inevitably is uh, a problem, becomes a real problem. And so it, it feels to me almost with the, with the aligned influence model, in order for it to be effective, the leaders in our Habitat affiliates have to kind of take a step back for a minute, put their ego aside, or at least put it in check and step back and have a bit of self-awareness, right? To sit down and say that, um, you know, we need to all be in on this thing together. It doesn't need to be one person, you know, driving the whole train. It doesn't need to be one person who's doing, you know, all of this work because really, as you said, um, maybe they're keeping us compliant, but they're not really allowing for good governance. You know what I mean? And, and it works well for a while. We were successful. We build, you know, houses and help families and all of that good stuff until, it doesn't work anymore for whatever reason. And so just putting all of that in So first of all, would you agree with that? I mean, it does seem like an accurate assessment. Absolutely. Um, 
interestingly enough, uh, with some of the uh, regional ASOs, we've been doing book clubs around the book. Uh, and uh, one of the things that uh, the affiliates that have been coming to that book, that book club been talking about, about one of the things that they're becoming aware of is the importance of being prepared for leadership transitions. Um, uh, several of them have talked about that they think that this is important uh, at this time uh, to prepare for a moment when they're going to have a leadership transition. Because when you're very dependent on one really successful leader, um, uh, when that one leader uh, isn't there anymore, now all of a sudden the, the organization can be at risk. And so to have an organization that's aligned in which there is a really effective board uh, that understands its role and a really effective executive that understands their role. Now, wherever the transition is, whether it's the chair of the board or whether it's the executive director, uh, now all of a sudden you have in an, a well-aligned organization, you are prepared for that, that uh, transition better than you would be otherwise. Yeah, because it seems like this matter of alignment is really all about thinking for the future, you know, thinking ahead and not, not so much what are we doing right here this moment today to, you know, check off the boxes on our QAC, mm-hmm. but where do we want to be five, 10, 15 years from now when yeah. maybe all of the people who are in this room are, you know, gone on to other things. And it seems like you have to have that sort of um, forward thinking ambition wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. It's about uh, the the structural work, the hard work uh, is um, uh, is preparing for a future in which those people that are playing those roles can play them more effectively and uh, that transitions uh, can be handled more effectively as well because as new people come on, we have a clear understanding of what their roles are. They have a clear understanding of what their roles are so they can hit the ground running, if you will, uh, inside the context of that new role, as well as uh, that when you bring on a new leadership in on either side of that, on the executive side or on the board side, uh, that there's already alignment in, in terms of what the, what the roles uh, should be and uh, that uh, now uh, they're not having to try to restructure or renegotiate all of those things, they are able to uh, start working inside them. So what would you say then, just from your perspective, is probably the single biggest challenge to an affiliate effectively adopting the aligned influence model? What's the biggest hurdle for them to get over to actually take this model? put it into place. And then as you say in the book, stay aligned. What's the biggest challenge? Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, that um, uh, I, I don't know if I, if I put one big challenge, maybe there's, maybe there's one big challenge. I'll, I'll get to it when I talk through it, but there are, are multiple challenges. Uh, one of those challenges is, uh, is just, uh, we think it's going okay. Um, um, we, uh, you know, we're not broken, and so it's going okay. Because often, uh, when uh, I get uh, invited in, uh, it's when there's a crisis, um, and we got to figure this out. 
and uh, th that waiting until there's a crisis uh, is um, uh, it, it is there's a lot of effectiveness, a lot of efficiency that's sort of lost of uh, what you could have been doing before the crisis, so that uh, averting the crisis. I think that's one thing. If, you know, it's it's working, so well, why do something different? Um, uh, I also think uh, that uh, just the um, in habitat world, uh, we often joke about uh, picking the tile and uh, picking the paint color, uh, that uh, sometimes people get involved with habitat because they love the work of habitat. And that we end up having people that love the work of habitat uh, to, because they're volunteer to put them on the board. And then we get people who really love to pound nails and uh, paint houses and work with volunteers and work with families, uh, end up um, um, souring them by putting them, uh, souring them in two ways, putting them on a board where they don't get to do as much of what they really love to do. A and we start to tell them, wait, uh, when you're on the board, you really have to understand these boundaries and uh, stay out of uh, the work of the executive. Uh, now, uh, so, so I think we, we end up uh, taking people that really uh, have a desire to do one of these things and um, um, by not having uh, alignment, uh, end up um, souring them or getting them in the wrong place or end up with in a very well-intentioned way of them actually um, um, ended up harming rather than helping necessarily mm -hmm. that alignment going forward. So Ken, I, I love both of these examples or things that you've talked about. I, I wanna unpack uh, both of these here because that question you asked about why do something, why do we need to change? Why do we need to, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, which I think sometimes is, is a real logical fallacy, right? Because um, one, making the assumption that we're not broke, right? Mm -hmm. Which, you know, maybe we're not compared to what we were 20 years ago, but where are you going forward? And then, you know, why fix it? Well, sometimes you need to put the fix in place before the breaking happens, right? Um, you gave that example there saying that so many times you get called in when there's already a crisis, which maybe if you'd been called in beforehand, the crisis could have been averted. And it kind of got me thinking, I, I'm actually going to talk a little bit about this at the affiliate conference. Are you staying through, through Friday? Are you going to hang around? Uh, I am, I don't have my calendar in front of me right now, but okay. I, I'm planning on being there. Yeah. For okay. the, the, the length of the conference. So yes, I believe okay. so. Great. Cause I was actually going to kind of share this a little bit during our, um, the big affiliate annual affiliate meeting that we do. Because I, there's a, a Bible verse that I really love, and it says, you know, where there is no vision, the people perish. Mm -hmm. And I've always loved that verse and always come back to it because um, I think about the vision of Habitat and what it states that, you know, we're trying to create a world where everyone has a decent place to live. Mm -hmm. And I did some math recently uh, just here in the state of Georgia. We're looking at about, I think we're at like 10.3 million people and probably somewhere in the neighborhood of um, at, at least 10% of those are living in what is defined as poverty, according to the federal guidelines. And I sat down and just did some math on it and started to realize that, you know, if we continue to serve the same number of families that we serve every year, which is about 450, 
and the population of Georgia, let's pretend it remained stagnant. It didn't increase over time. We would be about, it would take us about like something like 800 years to finally actually have our vision met. And I thought, okay, that's a problem. Right. And so, um, you know, if we're going to be serious about this vision, we have to really be serious about serving more families and serving more families does not mean let's go out and just do more fundraisers and, um, you know, let's try to do this or do that. It has to be a big picture strategy, a big picture vision for how do you move your affiliate? Maybe it's great that you're building one house every year in your community, but in order for you to really move that needle. And that's great for that one family. I mean, that's, there's no doubt about that. But what about if you were building 10 houses, 15, 50 houses in your community? I mean, you would be seeing some real systemic change. And I think a lot of times to back it all up, I'm, I'm sorry to get on a soapbox there, Ken. <laughs> this is something, no, I'm, it's something I'm passionate about. But it, I think that that's where the that whole fallacy of if it ain't broke, why fix it? Well, because even if it ain't broke, you still want to make it better, right? I mean, you want to go further, do more, help more, you know? And for that, you, you can't really be complacent. You can't even be content. You have to see that there's a bigger vision here. And so, um, you know, that kind of, I don't know, that was when you said that, that just really, really struck a chord with yeah. me. Well, another way to talk about that, uh, and uh, listeners who will hear me talk about this uh, at the conference when I talk about um, uh, unpack the, the model, uh, is uh, the question of uh, why uh, do you have a board to begin with? Uh, uh, and I think it's a really good, it's a, it's a, a good thought exercise. So why doesn't a Habitat affiliate have a board? And everybody makes the logical jump. Well, we have a board because the government requires us to have a board. So why do you think the government requires you to have a board? Well, it turns out that if we reverse engineer that question, that in every case, when an organization is required to have a board, it's because they're managing somebody else's money. Uh, the publicly held for-profit is managing the investor's money. Uh, the nonprofit is managing the donor's money or the grantor's money. Uh, and the civic organizations are managing the taxpayer's money. And so in every one of those cases, that's where boards are required. So it turns out uh, that uh, the another way to address what you just said is that uh, that maybe it's okay uh, to build one house a year or whatever we're doing right now. But if we talk to our stakeholders, those who are whose money we're managing, would they believe that uh, we are, um, they are getting a, an appropriate return on their investment uh, for what we're doing? And can we uh, improve that return on their investment? Uh, you know, the return on the investment to the person that owns stock in GM is, did the stock price go up? Uh, the return on investment for the person that invests in affordable housing through uh, a Habitat affiliate is, uh, uh, is um, affordable home ownership being addressed in their community? Are more people being able to uh, uh, invest in their family by um, uh, having access to um, 
uh, to affordable, decent housing. I think that's another way to address what you're talking about, that it is, it is fact, in fact, uh, our commitment to those whose money we're managing that we are using their money efficiently and we're getting them as good a return on their investment as possible. That's an awesome way to put it. Um, I'm a big fan of the ROI and are you getting uh, more out of it than what you put in? Mm -hmm. So that's a very applicable, and I'll just say to me personally, I really, really love that. Um, so don't be surprised if you hear me steal it uh, in <laughs> September, just to let you know. So, okay. so kind of following along this vein, okay, let's, what, what do you see as the long-term consequence to affiliates who really don't want to change, who don't want to change their model of governance, who don't want to change what they're doing. They're just happy where they are. You know, the boat's not rocking, so let's not shake it. Um, what, what do you see as being the long-term consequence of those, th those organizations that really don't get aligned and don't stay aligned? Yeah, well, uh, actually, uh, you know, going back to it works until it doesn't work, uh, mm -hmm. that uh, they are just uh, taking on risk that they don't necessarily need to be taking on, or they could be addressing risk, organizational risk, in a way that uh, uh, th that would um, prepare them for whatever those things are in the future when it stops working, either because a key person is left or because there's a key challenge that nobody expected. Um, you know, those key challenges are uh, lots of things. Uh, one of the affiliates here in Colorado. Uh, don't know how well known it is nationally, but in 2013 we on the front range of Colorado here, we had what was called the thousand year floods, um, floods that uh, had the uh, probability of happening once or only once every thousand years. And uh, that uh, devastation uh, to homeowners uh, along uh, those spaces uh, where the floods impacted. And uh, one of the affiliates here in Colorado, uh, actually the video is still on my website, said we didn't understand it when we were doing the aligned influence work but we were preparing ourselves for our uh for our most important challenge we were preparing ourselves for the day when the entire uh front range would be looking to those people who were addressing um a home ownership and uh, a recovery home recovery uh in an important way and we as Habitat were right at the front of the list uh, that uh, that the communities we served in were turning to Habitats uh, uh, to try to help address um, uh, the uh, repair of homes and often the complete rebuilding of homes um, uh, in those spaces because there were tons of people that were now in the space of uh, uh being um in um uh, not decent homes anymore uh so uh, that that whole idea of um, preparing yourself improving yourself being ready for whatever that challenge is that's coming up whether it be a personal challenge where you've lost a key leader and that really you were building your success around that key leader uh, or uh, there's some kind of an outside influence, economic influence, pandemic influence, uh, 
a natural disaster influence that uh, either challenges what you're doing or or really puts you in the place of needing to respond to a huge challenge. So, all right, so let's take that even further. Um, There's something that, that someone shared with me a number of years ago, a good friend of mine, and he said the he saw this condition in Americans, from, really from all walks of life, that we kind of had this um, mentality sometimes. We, we, and if you think about it, Ken, there's so many movies out there where you take just the average Joe who, you know, he's been a plumber for the last 15 years, but all of a sudden he gets recruited by the Yankees and goes out there and throws the perfect game kind of thing. <laughs> you know, we've got all those kind of um, hero movies. We, we love hero worship in America. And it's funny to me because I think sometimes we really start to believe that about ourselves. Like we, we don't realize that the reason somebody like Babe Ruth or Hank Aaron was so great at what they did is not because they just woke up one morning and said, oh, okay, I'm going to go out here and break a record. It's because they put in constant, tireless effort to their craft, to being great at what they did. And I think if you look at leaders throughout time, anyone that you would consider a great leader, it's because that's what they did. It wasn't that they sat around waiting for the calamity to happen or for the opportunity to happen. They sat there well, they didn't really sit there, but they worked tirelessly to prepare themselves for when, and, and one of the, one of my favorite leaders is Winston Churchill. And if you, you know, read any of the bio biographies about him, he was a guy that was really, um, he, he really believed that he had something to offer and he was constantly working to become a better leader. And, you know, sometimes he made some tremendous mistakes, but as time went on, eventually he got himself into a position where he was prepared to lead England through the greatest crisis it had ever seen. And I think what you just said is so critical there. I love this as it pertains to habitat, because these guys clearly were not expecting a thousand year flood. And as you said, they didn't even know that they were preparing for it, but because they did, because they were putting the work in, they were there when the, when the need was greatest. And if there's anything that we've learned over the last 18 months, um, it's that, Eventually, the calamity is going to happen. Eventually, as you said, the, the, it works well until it doesn't. Well, the doesn't part is going to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, it might happen next week. It might happen a year from now. Who knows? But you've got to be prepared, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Uh, and it's moving from an individual being a hero to an organization being a hero, I think. Right. Uh, that I think this is about right. making sure that... Uh, that affiliate became the hero rather than any one right. person in that organization became the hero. There were key people in that organization that stood up and were being part of it, but they understood their point was they understood their role and they understood how their role made the whole organization more successful. And so the affiliate became the hero in that story. Um, I, I really uh, think that that's the, the, uh, a key in all of this is uh, really making sure that the organization is positioned for whatever um, the future may hold um, because the future may hold challenges they don't know are coming. The future may hold opportunities they don't know are coming. And uh, that building this around, not in one individual, but around a structure 
where uh, individuals can fit in and play that role. And now the whole organization um, gets to play that hero role, role. I think that's the ultimate goal. Uh, that's awesome. And I, I would agree with you 110%. And I think you and I have discussed a little bit that one of the things we're really big on here at Habitat Georgia is, is servant leadership mm-hmm. and the servant leadership model that uh, Robert Greenleaf started. Um, you know, and I know that you're a fan of John Maxwell, as I am as well. And of course, he's a, a big proponent of servant leadership. And as you were speaking, it made me think of um, actually a, a quote that I read recently from him. And it said, if your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more and become more, you are a leader. And what you just said is basically the same idea. It's not about building it around yourself or around a single individual, but really around uh, this organization, making this organization the best that it possibly can be. And that's, and, and to me, that's, that's leadership. And that's absolutely what aligned influence stands for. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Well, Ken, I am looking at our time here. I want to be respectful of your time. So I, uh, I, I want to tell you, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate you. Um, I hope that we can maybe sit down some more in the future and unpack this because I've really enjoyed this discussion. It's been my honor, and I look forward to being with you and your affiliate leaders uh, in Georgia in uh, next next month, right? Or uh, is it? Yeah, is it September? next month. Yeah, late September. September. Yeah. yeah, we're less yeah. than 60 days right now. Yeah, so, so I look forward to seeing you. Well, I look forward to seeing you as well, my friend. And I, I hope that one day I'll be able to maybe come see you out there in Colorado. I, I have to, I have to confess, um, in preparation for our meeting today, I was thinking about you. And I got a little mixed up uh, for the folks who were listening. I got a little mixed up on my time difference <laughs> between Mountain Time and Eastern Time, and uh, I was thinking, of, and I don't know why I did it, but um, I started thinking of Colorado, and I just got this itching to listen to John Denver. So, <laughs> so, so I put on some John Denver in honor of you, Ken. Oh, great. Uh, we'll take it. Well, awesome, Look forward man. to seeing you out here. Yeah, same here, Ken. Take care, my friend. Okay, bye.